0: Welcome to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Racial Justice Commission measures on your New York City ballot. Staff from the City Bar Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging sat down with the commissioner and the special counsel for the New York City Racial Justice Commission to discuss the process through which the commission chose the measures that will appear on the New York City ballots and what changes New Yorkers can expect if the measures pass. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Tanya martinez Galanucci, and I am the Executive Director for the Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging here at the New York City Bar Association. And I have a really important question for our listeners today. Did you know that there will be three racial justice questions on your ballot this November? I didn't know either, which is exactly why we're here today. And of course, you know, having this platform and being who we are, we felt like we really needed to be in on this conversation. Of course, not to tell anyone what to do with their vote, but just making sure that the information gets out there and people know what's going on. And so we brought in the professionals. We are joined here today by Loree Daniel Favors, who is a commissioner on the New York City Racial Justice Commission and the Executive Director of the Center for Law and Social Justice at Meggar Evers College. And we're also joined by Jimmy Pan, who is the Policy Director and Special Counsel for the Racial Justice Commission. And you know who I am, so I'm going to kick it off to Angie.
2: Hello, I am Angie Avila, and I am the Manager of Development and Communications with the Office for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging. And let me just kick it over to my colleague and good friend to introduce herself. And I'm Mary Ellen LaRosa, and I'm the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator for OD. Thank you, Mary Ellen. So I just want to start off with why we are all coming together this afternoon. If you could just give us some background on the Racial Justice Commission and its measures. I open the question up to both.
3: Sure. So one of the things I always like to remind people about when we're talking about these ballot proposals is that they were literally born out of the energy that drove what was happening in 2020. So if you go back to 2020, we saw not just the deaths, the vigilante deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, who was killed at the hand of white supremacists who themselves had connections with law enforcement. It wasn't just the fact that Breonna Taylor, while sleeping in her bed, was awakened and killed with a no-knock warrant. It wasn't just that we saw a lynching, George Floyd being lynched on camera. It was all three of those things happening at the same time that the COVID pandemic really reminded the country about the severity of the racially disparate impacts of institutional white supremacy and of how... Higher value of white lives as embedded in the structure of governance, and so people took to the streets. And it wasn't like they were protesting any old thing that they were protesting in today's gone past. You protest on the weekend, or you protest for your lunch hour, you protest for a day, and then you go back to work. Well, we were all stuck at home with the pandemic, and so people had time to really think about the nature of what was causing them to want to protest. They had time to really think about in in depth ways with the structure of of racism and how it has impacted our society, and they were able to be still with those thoughts long enough that it drove them to the streets not just by the day not just by the week or but month after month after month millions of people took to the streets all across the country New York City was no exception and in New York City we saw a demand for people not just for the the emotional release that can come with protests I love a good protest as much as anybody but if your protest is not tied to something tangible your protest will stay in the realm of a pressure release valve while you go back to business as usual well the protests were so sustained and New Yorkers were so unified in their demand that something structural be done to address the structural racism that we were experiencing and it caused our elected officials to act. Then Mayor, former Mayor Bill de Blasio, in addition to outlining Juneteenth as a holiday, in addition to painting Black Lives Matter in the streets, both of which were things I thought were nice, but they were not structural in any way, also put together this Racial Justice Commission, which was charged with doing something more than cosmetic, which was charged with really looking at the charter and the charter for all of the New Yorkers who may or may not know, that's like our city's constitution. So we've had the national constitution, we've got the New York State constitution. Well, the New York City Charter is the city's constitution, and our charge as commissioners was to basically determine how can we look at the the charter itself, which again is the constitution for our our municipality. How can we look at that and address structural racism in a way that is responsive to the demands New Yorkers were making in that moment, and in a way that was able to grapple with the fact that we weren't talking about moments in time, but we were talking about decade after decade, centuries of racial oppression that had been intentionally baked into governance. And so from that commission, 11 of us were appointed, myself and 10 others, all of whom are super awesome, dope people, not all of whom I agree with on everything, but they just happen to be super dope people doing super dope things. And the 11 of us met, we gathered, we had listening tours, we had testimony and listening sessions, hearings for New Yorkers in every single borough, from every single area of expertise, we had experts coming in, we had everyday mothers, abuelas and, and uncles and aunties and people coming in virtually and in person to tell us about the impact of systemic racism. And what we heard in case after case after case was that these issues are perpetual, they are longstanding, and they are almost not even questioned any longer. And we need, we as New Yorkers needed to have substantive change. And so the commission responded by putting together these three ballot proposals, which do not deal with racism in terms of getting rid of it, right? They, do, they are not, we are not going to, if these if New Yorkers go to the ballot on November 8th and vote yes on all these proposals, and these proposals are enacted into law, which as a New Yorker, I'm taking off my commission hat, as a New Yorker, as a mother, as a homeowner here who has my, my children born in this city, I, I will be voting yes on all of them. Well, let's say everybody out there agrees and they all vote yes. That yes vote means that these proposals become law, but these proposals are just a first step, and they are designed to put the city on a pathway that causes it to not just have surface level change, but to think about substantive structural changes that are going to force the city into a path that centers equity at its core for governing principles. So- I could talk about each of those elements in depth. I know there are other questions, but that's just sort of the backdrop of how we got to this point right now. These pro- these proposals were born out of the protests from New Yorkers really wanting the city to grapple with these issues in very real and
1: significant ways. thank you so much for bringing up that history because we've talked a lot about how George Floyd and a lot of the other incidents that you've brought up and the protests have affected the legal industry and people generally. So this is so great to hear this side of it. And also, you and, and 10 other people, like, are you guys, the, you guys sound with like the racial justice Avengers. I want a poster. <laughs> I will sign Like, I, <laughs> I, I want the merch. I will buy, <laughs> please. This is something I want to spend my coin on. So thank you for sharing that. That sounds amazing. The next question we have is why these measures? So it's why these specific measures as the first three.
3: So these first three measures, the first is a measure that looks at creating a preamble for the state constitution, the city constitution. We'll talk about why that matters in a minute. The second creates a racial justice commission and a mandate for every city agency to have a racial justice plan. We'll talk about that in just a sec. And then the third looks at requiring New York City to calculate the true cost of living so that when it is determining the appropriate level of service provision, it is going to do so with the numbers that reflect what it really costs to live in this city, as opposed to the. Artificially low numbers that say you can raise a family of four with twenty six thousand dollars and not be considered poor, and so we—that's a fallacy. And so these ballot proposal initiatives, and I guess I, I can start first by just talking a little bit about what each of them will do. The first ballot proposal seeks to create a preamble, a language that would start the con- that would be amending to the Constitu- to the city charter at the top of the charter. So we know we have the the preamble for the constitution for the United States. A preamble is a guiding statement of values, and the preamble. You you can go on the website and look at the actual language itself. It's actually very substantive. It looks at the history of racism that sort of produced the New York that we know today. And in grappling with that and recognizing that history, it calls upon the city to create as its vision one that moves us towards racial equity and racial justice. And that's important, not just because it feels good to have a preamble that sort of situates what it is we're fighting for, but it's also guiding and instructive. And when you have guiding and instructive language as a part of your legal documents, what that means is that when decisions have to get made in this city, and there is an option that might be quite frankly advantageous to some, but inequitable. And then there's another option that is going to fa- allow for far more equitable access to resources and, and power, then the city's guide and instruction, if this preamble is adopted as part of the city charter, would be to take the path that's going to lead us to more equity. So no, it might not in order to the benefit of just a handful of already wealthy people. If the option is to choose between that and choose between an option that's going to lead us to more equity for the masses, for traditionally marginalized communities, then the city would need to factor that in as it's making its decision. So it is visionary in that it says our goal is to be a city that is going to pursue more equity. And it's instructive in that when decision making has to happen, we're not just going to be allowed to continue with business as usual and making decisions that favor those who, quite frankly, need some of this support the least. So that's the first one. The second ballot proposal really looks at creating a racial equity plan and a racial equity commission and puts together long-term processes. So this is something I personally, I love this proposal. <laughs> it's one of my favorite ones. I don't know if I'm allowed to have a favorite, but this is one of them because this proposal basically says that we are going to require every single city agency and city government, city hall itself to have a racial equity plan that doesn't just speak in terms of aspiration. The plan is going to look back at how they've done in the past. So how has sanitation done when it comes to being equitable in the distribution of its resources and services? How has ACS, when it comes to Child Protective Services, how equitable have they been in their attention? This is a big issue for us at the Center for Law and Social Justice because in our early history, we had to file a lawsuit against ACS because they were wholesale removing black children in equitable ways that you did not see happening with white children. So these are big issues when you think about all of the ways That city agencies have an impact on our life. Those city agencies are now going to have to look back to the past. What have we done as it pertains to equity? How good of a job have we done? How poor of a job have we done. And with that look-back data, they will then be required to plan a going forward plan that factors in what they learned through that look-back process so that the next set of service provisions are not going to be as inequitable as they were in the past. Doesn't mean they've solved racism, but it does mean that they are forced to now structurally engage with how they are distributing services so it will disrupt the inequitable distribution of services that has sort of typified what many of the New Yorkers who came to talk to us and testified about testified too, but it will also cause them going forward to think more about centering equity in their provisions. This proposal also creates a commission For a job because it was hot on the market. It's about making sure that every city agency is required to factor this in as a part of their structure. And this was important because what we heard in all of those many hours of testimony was people do not want surface level decisions. And they do not want a single person in a massive agency who kind of has a good enough heart to want to be equitable. They don't want their justice access to rely on that. They wanted structural change. And that's why this second proposal is one of my favorite. The third is also giving me a run for my money because it deals with money. This third proposal looks at a true cost of living. I mentioned earlier that there are some measures of, of cost that would say that you can raise a family of four under $30,000 and not be considered poor. I'm a part of a family of four and I'm in a two-parent household. Both of us are employed. I cannot even imagine trying to raise our children in this city, afford child care, after care, before care, transportation, all of the things that go into it. If I was just on a single Income, or if our combined income was less than $50,000, it would be impossible. It would be impossible for some, but it's actually what we expect for the masses. And so this true cost of living proposal says, well, what does it cost to raise a family of four in New York City? What does it actually cost to be able to feed this family? What does it cost to make sure that they're going to have more month at the end of the, or enough month money at the end of the month to outlast the month that they're currently in? And what does that look like? And the reason that data is important is because if I'm administering resources, if I'm distributing services, I need to know what it actually costs for my constituents to benefit. What does it actually cost to make a difference? Am I just basically doling out poverty dollars because I'm working on this artificially low assumption that they can do the impossible, that they can do what Isla Daniel Favors cannot? Or am I doling out resources in a way that realistically responds to the financial needs that they have? And fiscal inequities, financial inequities, which are borne out as a result of racial inequities are some of the biggest challenges that people spoke to in those hearings. So those are the three proposals. You can read every single one of them at the Racial Justice Commission's website. It's the preamble, which will be the guiding instruction. It's the Racial Equity Commission plan and office, which will stand alone and oversee every city agency so that we don't have just a, a piecemeal approach Approach, but we've got a citywide uh, effort at ensuring all of us are in accordance with this mandate and making sure that we're using real data when it comes to calculating what people actually need to live here.
1: Larie, you can't choose a favorite. This is like having children. It's like having children. We have to love them all equally because... And now
3: that I'm a racial justice avenger, I mean, you know. (laughs) Hello.
1: Hello. Can we get a symbol? Well, I guess that's not Marvel. But, you know, (laughs) can we get something in the sky? So much of what you said resonates with me. So much. You Mm. know, and just thinking about the second proposal in particular, as you were... As you were saying, I was having flashbacks to my teacher days when I lived in Manhattan and worked in the Bronx. And I remember mm. that there was a huge sn- snowstorm once. And, you know, we're true New Yorkers know it takes a lot to close down to school. So I was just getting dressed and getting ready because I was like, I got to go to work. The kids are waiting. You know, we got to go. And I, to my surprise, the streets were relatively clean where I was in Manhattan, oh, where I was God. in Manhattan. So I walked my little self to the train station and then got out in the Bronx and it was the ice capades on, yeah, it was rough. Like when I say that there was sheets, like I don't even know how to say it, like sheets of ice covering the sidewalks and street, not a single plow had been through those streets. And I found myself finding my students literally in the streets, holding on to each other, Holding on to cars to gates, sliding across to get to our school because schools weren't closed. Ooh. In fact, that morning as a school, because mm. so few kids came mm. in, because it was just impossible. Actually, one kid broke a leg, literally trying to get to school. Yeah. And we're listening to the news, and the commissioner comes yeah. on and the this, you know, school board comes on, they're like, school's open. And they show a beautiful, you know, view of Manhattan completely clean. And we're like, What what about us? What about? Us. Everyone's here. Everything's open. Everything's clean. Everything's ready, but not for everyone. And so I love I love hearing about this and really thinking about what makes it equitable. And talking about cost of living, we're also a family of four. And I will tell you, I was a family of four who lived on 15K a year for a lot of my life when I was young. That's how much my mother made. And I will tell you, it was hard. And we barely made it out. And I barely made it out you know, and so expecting families to make the impossible happen is ridiculous. And so
3: especially when that expectation is not evenly. Oh, not out, at all. Right? Not at all. And, and that's that's one of the things that, you know, even as I, I talk about the history of this, for a lot of our white brothers and sisters in the city, this was the first time in 2020 that a lot of them were grappling with the severity of, it. I mean, I think we all know, it's just, I, hope, I hope we all know to a certain extent how bad things are. But l- seeing those protests was the first time that some of our white brothers and sisters got to really see how this is impacting other communities. And I would just ask, because we saw Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson last week talking in her case, on the and talking at oral arguments about the voting rights case. And one of the things that she noted was that in the history, the the legislative history of the 14th Amendment, which is one of those amendments that came after the Civil War, in that history, the legislators who were drafting that 14th Amendment, which gave citizenship to black people, recognized on the record that the goal of equity post-Civil War, post-enslavement, was to elevate the former enslaved, the freedmen, up to the level of citizenry that white people enjoyed. And it is a shame to me, and it shocks me, but it's Mm -hmm. the reality that today in New York City, we are still trying to ask that New Yorkers consider elevating other communities to that basis at which many of our white brothers and sisters enjoy. Now, this is not to say that white people don't have poverty. It is not to say that white people were not living in some of the same shelters I had to stay in when my parents were poor. It is not to say that at all, but it is to say that when it comes to racial justice, when it comes to the distribution of resources, you know good and well the Upper West Side was going to get snowplowed. The Manhattan, we know good and well which communities are going to get their trash picked up and which communities are not. And I want my kids in East New York and I want my kids in parts of the Bronx to be able to walk outside and see that beautiful, pristine plowed sidewalk the same way that my kids on the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side get to.
1: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And the cost of living now is terrifying. And again, like you said, I have a partner, we both work. And let me tell you the first time in the last few weeks when we went to go get, cause we get organic milk, you know, Moving up, moving on up, and all and moving and all things, and <laughs> 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 all things. Moving on up. When that <laughs> let me tell you, when that gallon of milk rang for fifteen dollars, mm. the heart attack the cashier basically almost had, which alerted me that something was going on. She literally screamed. She was like, "Oh!" and I was like, "What happened?" She was like, "This milk is fifteen dollars. Go put it back." I was like, "You're right." <laughs> I'm gonna go put that back. You're gonna be off organic for a while kiddos. Sorry about it. But anyway, let me get back. the <laughs> other Let me get back to the question. So one thing you mentioned, you were sort of talking about the process a little bit. And I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more how these proposals came to be. What was that process? You You talked about hearing from folks. Was there anything else?
3: So we came to these proposals because they allow for guardrails. So the Racial Equity Office and Commission, there is a clear recognition, it does not matter how much of a cheerleader I am for racial equity. There's a whole lot of people here who don't want it. So having a racial equity plan mandate for our agencies, having a commission set up to oversee it, and having equity officers who are charged with sort of pulling all of this together, that was our way of acknowledging, number one, We can't really go chapter and verse and change the charter, but we can make sure that every part of this city that is governed by the charter has guardrails that will require it to produce some metrics and to produce plans based on those metrics. And that for us was really one of the best ways we could get at the fact that we had a two-year mandate and hundreds of pages with thousands of provisions that impact every single layer of government. So our question was, how can we impact every single layer of government, knowing we cannot get to every provision on this charter? when it came to the inequities, we realized that part of the reason we have such inequity when it comes to allocation of resources is because we're not using real numbers. And we heard from New Yorkers who talked about the fact that this is what I make. This is what they say I should be able to afford. Never the twain shall meet. And they're like ships passing in the night. So we realized that, OK, there is a fundamentally structural Problem here if we cannot even use the real numbers that correspond with what people are actually experiencing. The guiding proposal or the guiding language for the preamble, there was a recognition that, well, you know, if we can't address every single provision of the charter, we at least need to have an Um, omnibus approach. We need to have a, a preliminary just statement of this is what outcomes the charter is supposed to hopefully produce a more equitable city. So really the three proposals you have were our best effort at recognizing that number one, resolving racism within government is extraordinarily difficult. Number two, it doesn't matter if we did have a full team that would be able to go chapter and verse through every single provision of that charter. We were still going to only be addressing symptoms until we took a more holistic approach and put us on a pathway for actually addressing the disease. So after those hearings took place, after the reports came out, we were... I I hate to call it a come to Jesus moment, a come to Buddha, come to all of the God and goddesses moment where we basically had to realize we had to do something that was going to force the city in a particular direction and then pass it off to the next round of folks who can pick up the baton and take us into addressing what each of those elements of the charter actually do. But without the structural change at the outset, that train isn't even on the right track, let alone in the right railroad.
2: Wow, wow, wow. So much was already shared, and honestly, I am a visual learner. So on behalf of all of the visual learners, thank you for literally painting a portrait of why and how these proposals came to be. I just feel like you're providing all the information that we need, so, so thank you on behalf of us visual learners. So I believe that you touched on this already, but just to reiterate, let's say a majority of voters check off yes. What do you imagine for New York City once these measures are in place?
3: Aside from me jumping up and down with my own personal (laughs) joy at the fact that my kids have a shot in this city. (laughs) So that would happen for me personally. But in terms of what the city would look like, Pick an agency, any agency that is responsible for contact with people of differing communities. All of us are going to then be able to look at our city agencies with an expectation that isn't just how I feel about it. It's not just based on the very negative experience I had when I came into your HRA office or your office and you made me, a black woman, hold my child, holding my child who wanted to sit on the ground and couldn't without police coming. For those of you who remember the story that happened a few years ago, where is the plan for making sure that never happens? Do we know what happened with the people involved in that situation where the young woman is there with her child, there standing for hours, no seat, she sits down on the ground and is then arrested, her child is taken into custody? Do we know what happened with the officers involved there? Do we know what happened with the personnel who called them and involved them in that process? We have no idea. Do we know if that office took any ameliorative steps to make sure that that never happens to a black mother again? we have no clue we will if people vote yes on the proposals we'll understand exactly what went wrong because they'll have to tell us and once they tell us we can say well then what are you going to do about it and if what they're going to do about it is whack sorry i almost use another word but we'll be able to see is this bs or not like is this a real plan are you do you have a real substantive effort here and if not then we can organize around it then we can plan for it and we can plan for it with the mandate that the city has to move towards equity because the preamble told us so but that's just if people vote yes
2: right and on just throwing it in right you're listening to you i'm like I, i'm getting flashbacks i'm thinking of things that doesn't only just affect marginalized communities. Like, let's also think about neurodivergent individuals. Come on now. Right? How are they being treated? That's right. Those with autism, you know, how are they being treated? There's so many instances where they have been mistreated because there is no education and there is no help. Here, we're going to get answers. How did you treat that adult living with autism? What, What were your steps? How can you do better? I mean, there's just Listening to you speak, there's so much more that's involved. So Yeah, yeah. and
3: this is Thank just you. the first step, because as powerful as the conversations I've been having with people about these proposals are, as, as much energy and emotion that we all felt in 2020, as powerful and dynamic as that moment in time was, this only moves forward if people agree and they will be able to vote their conscience and I just encourage people to really go back to that moment and to think about what it was that drove you either to the streets or drove you to have compassion for people who were there. And I really want you to ask yourself, was it just about the emotional release of that moment? Or did you in that moment recognize that something fundamental must be done? And if that is you. If you're in that latter category, then I encourage you to really sit with these proposals and, and think about how inequities have shown up in this city and think about what other options we have that are readily available to us that will allow us to move forward in as powerful a way.
0: If I can, I'll just add a little bit of color to that as well. What Laurie? shared was that one of the inequities you heard that most often was about inequity in decision-making and representation. And so I just want to touch on the proposed commission that would come into play, because I think that's one that's hardest for people to understand sometimes. In that world, if voters voted it in, it'd be New Yorkers who come together as a commission and say, look, you're the agency that is supposed to provide social services, and you're choosing to record as your indicator the number of SNAP benefits handed out. But actually, we held Mm. meetings in the community, and what we heard from the Southeast Asian community is that that's a little bit less relevant than the amount of time it takes to actually have to wait at an access center, or the amount of times we tried to get translators and we couldn't, right? So it's not always apparent really what should be measured by city government. And so one powerful way is to actually bring in New Yorkers who can inject that perspective and say, actually, you know, what you are pointing out as your number, as your goal is just what you want to say. But it's actually not what matters so much to us.
1: Jimmy, that's such an important point. And this is something that we've tried to highlight quite a bit in our own education. It's just the importance of centering. The most marginalized voices, the folks who have to jump through all the hoops, that have to face all the obstacles because they right. know what they are. And if they're not at the table to provide that insight, then they live with these obstacles forever, right? And, and you know, we need – The marginalized voice at the table. We absolutely need it. It's the only way we'll ever get anywhere close to equity and inclusion. And so this is such an amazing point that you made and and shows just how nuanced it could be and that you need to have walked in that path to have figured that out. If you're sitting in an office somewhere and you're just looking at at spreadsheets, you don't know the story of the translator. You don't know the hours wasted on that line or how cold it was outside when you were waiting on that line, right? Like you don't know
3: those things. And so that is such an important point. Thank you, Jimmy. Yeah. Jimmy, to your point, that also speaks to just the power of this commission being assembled as it was. This was not, and I know in in this country, we often think about race in terms of a black white paradigm, for obvious reasons, but it's more complex than that. It's more nuanced than that. And so I think we got a real beautiful flavor of what that looked like throughout this entire process, which is one of the things that I found to be one of the more enriching aspects of it.
1: So we focused on New York City. Obviously these are measures for
3: New York City, but I was wondering if we could break away for a moment and talk about what else around the country, if anything, is happening that might be similar
1: to what's happening here.
3: We've seen in places like Evanston, Illinois, where uh, they have looked at, you know, the question of the lingering impact of enslavement and, and Jim Crow anti-black sentiment, and so they've created a housing program. The state of California has a commission that's looking specifically at the question of reparations. I think what we're seeing all across the country is local communities are saying something has got to give, and. Many of them are then moving forward with putting together commissions, getting reports, doing whatever sort of investigative processes they can to really bring these questions front and center. However, I don't think there's any other municipality, Jimmy, you may know better than I, to my knowledge, that's dealing with racial equity the way we're doing it here. This is a uniquely New York moment and an opportunity to lead in ways that are absolutely phenomenal if New Yorkers vote yes.
0: That That's correct. To our knowledge, this is the only commission that is tasked with addressing structural racism through charter revision, you know, really getting at the city's constitution. And so for those lawyers who are listening and thinking about how do you affect change upstream of all these symptoms that we see play out decade over decade, how do you really change the river? This is one way to think about it. And that mechanism is available in a lot of cities. And so, I, for example, yesterday we had a uh, information session and uh, Michael Nutter, who was a, the prior mayor, fully was there and he said, I wish I had thought of this 15 years ago. And so we say to the lawyers listening to this podcast, to policymakers in other cities, think about what this can mean to open up your city's laws to the residents of your city to vote on. And to help start to define their vision for the city, which we know is often locked in decades and centuries past and bakes in all those inequities and injustices and, frankly, horrors in perpetuity. I think we see some cities start to put these similar processes in place. Like, there are a lot of chief equity officers these days. The problem is it's not mandated in the foundational law. It's not really given the same level of primacy as like your budget officer let's say. And and it falls and, and passes with the whim of the mayor. If you get someone else voted in and they're the person who lifted up the chief equity officer, the moment they're out, that person may not have the perch anymore. And so this is putting into place something that can be in for a long, long time.
3: I would also add to that what we're seeing, what we are seeing all across the country is instance after instance where people with white supremacists governing uh, affections, I don't know how else to call it, are assuming positions. They're running for office. They are taking over the institutions that allow our democracy to function, not because they think they're good at those jobs, but because they think that they will be able to infuse their white supremacist perspective and governing inclinations into those spaces. So one thing I'm very clear on, we have had, I consider integration starting in 1964 with the Civil Rights Act, right? So we've got like less than a good 60 full years of integration in this country. And it can be undone. A lot of us forget that this is not the first time Country tried to integrate. We tried to integrate for the first 12 years after the Civil War, and it ended in a bloody massacre, massacres, plural of black people who were basically then forced to reoccupy the enslaved position in this society for over 100, almost 100 years until we got to the 1964 Civil Rights Act again. So, the democracy, racial justice, we can no longer allow ourselves to be swayed by language of neutrality. And, Jimmy, just to be official, I'm taking off my commissioner hat. This is the Larie Daniel Favors. Who had as a homeowner in this city and had children born here. So this is me, Larie the Voter, talking. We have had example after example of how people who have white supremacist inclinations are moving into positions of power intended upon making this country an 18th 40s, a 1730s era reality. And so if we're serious about democracy and we're serious about not having our integration 2.0 ended, because it can end. Integration is not a guarantee, right? It's a social policy that people were forced to take. They took it. Thank God they did. But they've done this before. And we saw what happened with the way the integration ended in the 1870s. And it can happen again right here. So what we are seeing across the country, though there are not nearly enough racial equity commissions or any type of commission that's dealing with this topic, even though we acknowledge that they are springing up in different places, what we are seeing a massive amount of is a return to good old Ku Klux Klan, uh, white supremacy, Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, call them what you want. It's a new name, same story. We're seeing that everywhere. And do not think that it is not upstate New York. Don't think it's not in Long Island. Don't think it's here in New York City. And Again, everyone will have a right to vote on how they think, what direction they think this city should move in. But if history is any instructor, and it is, then what we are seeing right now is a return to the embrace of white nationalism that is anti black, anti people of color, and is firmly rooted, far more firmly rooted in the history of this nation than is this nation's embrace of racial equity and justice. We have a moment right now to stand up, not just for this city, but to really send a, a Thing of What is it? The star across the bow. What's the phrase? You know what I mean? To to launch something. I don't know. Whatever the heck it is. Edit this in when we figure out what the language is. But we have a real opportunity to make a declaration that we are going to center racial justice. And we're going to say it with our full chest. We're not going to hem and haw about it. We're not going to be mealy-mouthed about it. Because you know who's not mealy-mouthed about it? The Proud Boys. You know who's not mealy-mouthed about it? The people who are taking over school boards. Because they don't want to have honest conversations about the history of race in this country. Because they don't want their white children coming home asking them questions about how they get to enjoy all of these unearned privileges. That is a conversation that must happen, particularly in a city that is as diverse as this one. We owe it not just to my ancestors, we owe it to our descendants and we owe it to the children who are here right now to do something better for them than was done for us. And if we don't come out and say that swinging with our full chest, with all the energy that we can muster, we will be drowned out in an instant by people who have absolutely no qualms with being that loud about how much racial inequity they would rather we embrace.
1: Thank you so much for that, Larry. And I, I highly encourage folks who are listening, if you're not getting the references Larry's making to the massacres, to the first attempt of integration, please do the research. And because it's part of the problem. Part of the problem is that so much of our country is receiving this revisionist history version of our history and not facts. And so what I love about everything you've said is that they're factual <laughs> and you can Google and check these facts. Check the facts. It's not that hard. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. The, the question that we had was, if passed, will the ballot proposals lead to huge increases in lawsuits? That is, can a person then sue the city and argue that the city is violating the new charter provision in some way?
3: So... As far as I recall, none of these mandates provide a private right of action. Is that correct, Jimmy? That's correct. All right. So in, in lawyer speak, unfortunately, though, I would have actually personally preferred that perhaps they do. I think I may have advocated that they should. <laughs> like, they don't. So, you know, and again, that gets back to the, the qualifier I gave at the beginning. This is just a first step. So there's no private right of action. You're not going to be able to say the mandate was implemented and the schools failed me and my community. I'm filing a lawsuit you will have other opportunities to advocate and to fight for what you think should be happening when it comes to your schools. But unfortunately, and I think this was actually the source of some heated debate among the commissioners, we had to realize that because this is just the first step, we could not build Atlantis. We were not able to resolve all the things. I think I wanted a personal right of a private right of action. I wanted more budgetary power tied to it. I wanted a lot of things I could not get. And that is a part of the messy process of compromise. So I know people have seen perhaps an op ed from some more conservative leaning outlets. If there were a private right of action, honey, I would be one of the first. To use it. But there's not, much to my chagrin. But the reality is that just means that there's another opportunity for New Yorkers to grapple with what we will have been able to accomplish. And then if we think that that is the direction the city wants to go in, that's a whole other commission. That's a whole other another process, another phase of this process.
0: And I do want to add, with my public servant hat on, that we say no private right of action, meaning I can't go to court and sue for a financial reward. But just like anything else in the charter, you can sue to hold the city accountable for following the law in general. So it's not that there's no accountability. It's just you can't go in seeking a payday. Not saying it's not deserved, but and that that's where we are.
3: Because you know I was going to add that last part.
2: Right? <laughs> so what i'm interested in learning is what is your response to those who might say a commission and ballot proposal isn't the best way to do this and that it should go through the city council or agency rules with time for public comment we had time for
3: public comment i outlined our hours and hours and hours and hours of testimony Hours and hours and hours of hearings. We had a citywide process for public comment. Sorry if you missed it. We tried to publicize, <laughs> tell people about it, but that's literally all of those public comments, all of that public hearing, that is the, the information contained in those reports. We didn't come out with that data out the top of our head. That came from New Yorkers, so we had that process. As it pertains to this going through city government, Personally, and I think even with my commissioner hat on, that allows for a politicization of the process that for me, taking my public servant hat off and my Larry hat on, allows it to be watered down in ways that I think can undermine the goal and does not allow it to meet this moment. And I think there is definitely a process for city council to play, for our our governing leaders to play. But when New Yorkers came and testified, when they demanded and they took to those streets in protest and they followed that up with participation in this process, it was a clear recognition that we've had government in existence in this city and state from the time that this city and state have been around. And if government were sufficient enough to deal with issues of structural racism, they either should have done that already, could have done that already, and or chose not to. So leaving issues of dealing with structural racism within government to people who are within government who are running for office who need elections. I don't need anybody to vote for me. I'm not running for office. I will never be a politician. So I don't I'm in, I'm immune from the concerns that well if I vote yes on this particular thing, will I have to then face my constituents? Will I have to be in a community that does not believe in this in these racial justice measures that I personally know will impact the city? If I'm a politician, and if this is a politicized process, then I am exposed to all of those concerns. Nobody on this commission is running for anything. So I don't have those concerns. I can't do that if I'm also concerned about public perception. And as a politician, I am very much concerned about public perception. So for me, giving this process to the very body that would have to interrogate itself about how to do better at racial justice when this is the body that essentially promulgates the systems that perpetuate racial injustice, that would be, to me, a fool's errand.
1: Why are you out here destroying our dreams to call you Madam President one day? You need to stop it. You need to stop it. I wasn't ready for this. (laughs) Jeez. It's
3: not gonna happen. (laughs) It's not not happening. I have said too much on the record and I will continue to say too much. Can you imagine the hearings? Please. (laughs) I am no Katanji Brown Jackson. She can, she can sit in that space and, and take it. I would have other words. We all play our role.
2: How would you respond to those who might say that this is more aspirational than concrete and will ultimately lead to implementation or budgeting challenges? So of course
3: it's gonna to lead to challenges. We're talking about racial injustice. Absolutely, it's gonna to lead to challenges. That's why we did not come up with ballot proposals that depend on the racial sensitivities of the person in charge. That's why we created ballot proposals that deal with structure, not how you feel about it. Of course, there are going to be challenges. It's a paradigm shift. So yes, challenges arise. Implica- it'll be difficult to implement. We're here for it. We send people to the moon. We like, can like, pierce, break sound barriers. We can do a whole lot of things. New York City can do a lot. We came back after 9-11. We came back after COVID. Are you kidding me? Of course it's gonna be hard. We're here for that. That's, we can do that, that's fine. In terms of whether it's aspirational or concrete, it is also aspirational. When we're talking about racial justice in a country that got its start by genociding against the indigenous, that got its start economically by trafficking millions of African people and enslaving them and their children and creating an entire governing structure that explicitly baked in racial discrepancies, you darn well better believe we need some aspirations. Otherwise, what are we doing? Those aspirations are what drove people to the streets that caused us to dream bigger than just having Black Lives Matter painted on the street and Juneteenth as a holiday. Again, I'm not mad at it. I'll take it. It's fine. But it's not structural. So yes, it is aspirational and it is concrete because we are concretely, if New Yorkers vote yes on the first provision, going to have a preamble that guides how all city governing decisions are made. If New Yorkers vote yes on the second proposal, we will concretely have a concrete demand that every single city agency, including City Hall, will be able to have that look back and that look forward plan of constantly engaging with how they've done and what the goals should be for them moving forward. If we vote yes on proposal three and it is voted into being, then we will concretely have data on the true cost of living that agencies will concretely be able to use and they're factoring as to how they're going to distribute those services. So it is aspirational, it is concrete, and it's going to be very challenging to implement. But you know what's harder? This, like what we have right now. Like if somebody asked me about how much is this going to cost. Are you kidding me? We have a $100 billion budget, maybe $10 million is sort of the price tag that people have put on this. 10 million with an m dollars to set up this office and these agencies and, and this racial equity plan and commission on a 100 billion dollar budget it costs pennies to do what's right the first time it costs a whole lot more to pay for the problems that perpetuating racial inequities costs think about all the the housing the healthcare the education negative impacts of perpetuating white supremacy in government and how much they cost us as a city. I think Citigroup put out a report a few years ago during the the mayoral election or just before the mayoral election, $16 billion that it costs just to perpetuate racism. It's very expensive, this racism thing. It's very expensive. So yeah, it's aspirational. Yeah, it's concrete and it's going to be difficult. Buck up, folks. Let's go. Let's make it happen. Make it happen.
1: Oh my god, that is perfection. Thank you guys so much for being here with us and educating us and educating our listeners. I'm so excited for this. And I hope that after the elections, once results are in, you can join us again. And let's process. Let's talk together. Let's let's get back at this. We're coming back. Avengers Unite? No, we're not the Avengers. You're <laughs> the Avengers. What are the, like, the, the Avengers sidekicks or like the fans? Whatever, whatever those guys are. We'll come and have this conversation again if you're up for it.
3: Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. So with that, thank you guys for being here. Do you have any closing thoughts? Go vote, people. And I can't tell you how to vote. This is up to you. But if you actually thought that the 2020 protest should lead to something more than just a kumbaya moment that you can capture in time and talk about the way you do your yearbook, then you need to really consider how you're going to engage with these proposals. Go vote.
0: And to learn more about it, go to nyc.gov racialjustice racial justice. We can read all the findings. You can read the legislation. You can pick out your favorite proposal and let us know which one you like best and flip your ballot. Thank you for listening to the 44th Street Podcast of the New York City Bar Association. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or at our website at nycbar.org. This podcast was produced and edited by Eli Cohen.